When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 23rd of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. And this is Michael Reed on LMFM. If you have a television but you don't have a TV licence, you face the potential of being fined €1,000. The fine is €2,000 for a second offence. And if you are then ordered by a court to get a licence but you don't, you could very well be facing a prison sentence. So what about finding space in prisons for the 30,000 people or so who decided not to get a licence over the last five weeks. And it would seem thousands of more people won't get a licence this week either, or over the coming weeks for that matter. Can the courts deal with so many cases, let alone incarcerate so many people when the level of disobedience is this great? No, of course not. The law is an ass if the law is not workable and the only solution in such circumstances is to change the law. RTA didn't have enough money five weeks ago to continue running the organisation in its current structure and every week for the last five weeks it has lost about a million euro in licence fee funding. These losses look set to continue at that rate of a million euro a week. In fact, even more people could join this campaign of disobedience, meaning the funding crisis at the state broadcaster could become unsustainable very soon. Yesterday, the Oireachtas Media Committee met in a private session. Malcolm Byrne is a Fianna Fáil senator. He's a member of uh, that committee and he joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Malcolm Byrne, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Yeah. I understand uh, the funding structures for RTE was one of the issues that you discussed yesterday uh, and you're hoping to meet with Minister Catherine Martin about this to see what plans she has. Uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, the Oireachtas Media Committee, uh, we met online yesterday, and we considered uh, the, the recent Grant Thornton report, which looked at some of the issues 
uh, that have got RT in a bit of bother uh, over recent months. Um, what we don't want to do as a committee is kind of go back over old grounds. What we're looking at now is what is RT doing to try to restore confidence in the national broadcaster? So we're looking to hear from the new director general, uh, Kevin Backhurst, and the executive board, uh, and they're being invited in to meet with us in September. And we're also looking to meet with Minister Catherine Martin to make a decision around the future of public sector broadcasting funding. Um, Public sector broadcasting is essential in a democracy, and there's an awful lot of good work uh, that RT and indeed other broadcasters such as yourselves and LMFM do, uh, and, and that requires funding. And the challenge for RT has been, it, it's been caught up in this debate between, um, on the one hand, having to rely on license fee income, and on the other, uh, having to compete, compete for commercial income. So we need to try to decide what kind of broadcaster we want RTE to be in the future and how we can ensure that we have a sustainable funding model. Because one thing is certain, as you said yourself, uh, the current model is certainly broken. Hmm. Uh, There's some annoyance uh, amongst members, is there not, with Minister Martin uh, and uh, trying to uh, get time with her uh, to find her. Uh, She hasn't been seen for months, well, for weeks. Well, well, I, I think to an extent that's unfair. I, I actually think Catherine Martin is a good minister. I, I perhaps argue uh, her brief is quite big. I mean, she's minister for tourism, sport, arts, culture, media, and the Gaeltacht. Uh, and you can imagine the full remit of all of those areas. Uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite significant. Uh, I know that she's devolved a lot of responsibility uh, for um, sports to uh, the, the Mies deputy, Thomas Byrne. And Thomas, I know, is doing a very good job there. Um, but even still, uh, that portfolio that Minister Martin has is, mm. is huge. She did take action very quickly once uh, the issues started to emerge uh, in RTE. And the decision on the future funding model, uh, it's not just Minister Martin's job. Uh, obviously, she has to bring a paper to Cabinet. But it really is time, I think, for governments to make a decision on how we're going to fund public sector broadcasting into the future. My own view um, is that we need to abolish uh, the TV licence fee. Uh, the licence fee, it's, it's an anachronism. It, it actually dates back to the Wireless Telegraphy Act of 1926, when if you had a wireless uh, you had to have a license, and that was replaced by a radio license. And when TV came along in Ireland in the 1960s, you then had to have a TV license. But we're now in a situation, as you say, that there are significant numbers of people who are not now paying their license fee. Uh, and we have a, an estimated 13% of households in Ireland that don't have a traditional television set. If you think about how people are consuming content, we're looking at it much more on our phones, on our laptops, and on tablets. So from that perspective, we've got to ensure that we have a funding model that's equipped for the digital age. Okay, but I am reading that uh, your committee has asked the minister to come before us at the soonest possible opportunity and that there's annoyance amongst some of the members about how the minister has not been seen in the last few weeks uh, and indeed uh, about the way that she's handling uh, the scandal at RTE. Well, I, I suppose you always want to maybe take what you, you read in the papers with a, with a pinch of salt. Yes, certainly some of my colleagues would have liked to have seen Catherine Martin more out in front on, on some of these issues. Uh, but I think if you look at what's happened over the last uh, number of months between the minister and the Iraqis committees, we've worked collegially to get information out there about what has actually happened. 
Um, and the crucial uh, issues now are about one, how does RT restore confidence in itself? Uh, and the minister wrote to our committee outlining that that's also her priority. Uh, but equally, I think w- what is important is we now need to make that decision. We can't keep kicking the can down the road mm. around how we're going to fund um, public sector broadcasting because it will get to a stage mm. when, you know, fewer and fewer people start to pay their TV license. Those of us who, who do pay it will start to ask the question, well, why am I paying it if, if, if others are not? Okay. And we've got to remember, you know, th- this is not about, you know, the, the money from the license fee goes to fund the news, the current affairs, the sport, the arts mm. programs, the documentaries that we all like and love on, on RT. And, and that money has to be found from somewhere. Mm. Well, when people start to conclude that there is no sanction for not having a, a TV license because there's too many people who are, are breaking the law, uh, they're going to... Uh, come to the conclusion that there's something better that they could do with the 160 euro. You say that that model is broken uh, and you have your views, uh, I'm sure, uh, on how public service broadcasting should be funded. Uh, But there's a technical uh, group report on this. Uh, I'm sure you want to see the recommendations as well because that report hasn't been published. Yeah, that's correct. So we've had lots of reports. In fact, I would even argue too many reports on how we fund uh, public sector broadcasting into in the future. The Future of the Media Commission, which was a government-established commission to look at the future of media in the digital age, made 50 recommendations. Government accepted and is acting on 49 of them. The one that it didn't accept uh, was the recommendation to abolish the TV license fee and effectively fund public sector broadcasting out of general taxation. And this is a model that's used in similar-sized countries to Ireland, such as Denmark and Finland. Um, we already have a, a, about 7% of the license fee, when somebody pays their license fee, about 7% of that uh, goes into a thing called the Sound and Vision Fund. And RT and other broadcasters, indeed, including LMFM, are able to compete for that. Uh, that's now managed by the new commission demand, the Media Commission. So in my view, if we abolish the license fee, if we fund public sector broadcasting out of general taxation, the Media Commission is already a vehicle that can effectively manage that fund. Uh, we ensure it's independent from government, because what you don't want is government you know, telling broadcasters what they can and cannot do. Um, but you have accountability for the money uh, through, through that mechanism. Mm. Uh, and, and I think it, it, it's, it's like that old line, never waste a good crisis. We now have a crisis in RTE. We know about the importance in Ireland of public sector broadcasting. Let's make the decision this autumn uh, and, and look at having a sustainable long-term model that will fund public sector broadcasting in Ireland, not just RT, but indeed mm. uh, other broadcasters and local radio as well. OK, but the time uh, is ticking on, isn't it? Uh, and there is a, a crisis uh, uh, to the tune of a, a million euro a week. You're to meet, your committee will meet again on the 13th of September. You'd assume by that stage at least another €4 million euro would be lost in licence fee funding. Well, that, that's the reality. I mean, what will happen this autumn is RTE are going to come to government uh, to look for a bailout. Um, that's going to be a sticking plaster solution that will will likely come with conditions, uh, which will probably include cost-cutting measures um, in RTE. Um, but that's only going to, uh, to, to to solve the problem in the short term. We've got to make a long-term decision uh, as to what we want to do, and, and that has to happen this autumn. I think I'd be very disappointed uh, with Minister Martin and the government if that decision is not made 
Um, because all, all that will happen is that RT will continue to lurch from funding crisis to funding crisis, uh, and we're not really tackling that, 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 that long-term issue. Um, and I think, you know, for people, and I, I, I get why people are angry about some of what happened um, in RT, but we do know the importance of having good quality public sector broadcasting. Okay. Uh, apologies for the interference there. Um, if um, we uh, get to September and we have uh, this kind of crisis, as you say, uh, there will need to, to be government intervention and subvention and a, a bailout of sorts. Uh, but you say that will come with terms and conditions and that RTE will have to cut costs. That will mean an awful lot more, won't it, than cutting uh, the cost of the highest earners in there or bringing down uh, the maximum salaries for presenters to €200,000 or or less, which seems to be where this is going. Um, Because that really only relates to a small amount of people as angry as the general public are about that. That's true. Um, Although I think Kevin Backhurst, the new Director General, has signals very clearly where he sees uh, the organisation going. Um, I, I think that you will probably see a, a more efficient RTE coming out of this. It'll probably move towards what's referred to as a publisher-broadcaster model, which is very similar to TG Cahar or indeed Channel 4. And what happens there is you have a station that kind of administers uh, general operations. It has a, you know, its own news and current affairs function, but it commissions a lot of programs from the independent uh, sector. As a, 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 and, and so what you get is you get a much more vibrant independent production sector in Ireland. And we have an incredibly vibrant, creative, independent production sector in Ireland. But the organization, RTE itself, will probably be, be much slimmed down. And mm. um, I, I think those, those decisions need to be made because... If we don't make the big decisions now, uh, the crisis that we have this autumn, it will only manifest itself as another crisis again next year. Uh, we will have the problem of fewer people paying their license fee. And, you know, there are, there are going to be increasing number of, of households that are not watching television in the traditional way that, we, that, that, that it has been watched. And do you imagine that we year. won't need a TV license going forward, that instead funding will be raised through taxation? In other words, it will be collected by revenue and taxpayers won't really have any say in whether they pay or not. And that will take away that criminal sanction uh, apart from anything else. But if that is the case, uh, can I also ask you uh, how much will we be paying or how much will people need to pay? Uh, will taxpayers need to pay more than that €160? Euro that the license costs? Well, ultimately, it's about uh, what this is about. It's about creating content. It's about Irish people being able to tell Irish stories. And our taxation already funds lots of things through through public goods. So, uh, you know, through the film board, we, we provide support for the creation of Irish films. Through the Arts Council, we provide funding for artwork. Uh, through um, Sports Ireland, we provide support to national governing bodies in sport and provide, uh, you know, sporting facilities. So we already, our taxes already go toward a lot of these public goods. And what we're looking to do, uh, I think now, is to say, okay, we've got to continue to create good quality Irish Mm. programs. Uh, That's news and current affairs, but it's also stuff like documentaries. It's sports pro, it's coverage of sports programs. It's arts programs. It's children's programs. And we've got to decide right, how are we going. Uh, how are we going to fund that? Mm. Um, so 
the level of funding will obviously be a you know a cause for debate. It's like yeah. every budget. That that, that's for know, legislators like you, of course, uh, to decide. Yeah. Pe- what people listening to us want to know is how much is it going to cost me. Well, I, I I don't imagine. I mean, if you you look at the kind of sums that the license fee at the moment generates something of the order of about two hundred million euro per year in a normal year. Uh, now it is estimated, you know, in a normal year that perhaps up to forty million ends up being being uncollected. Uh, and then what RT would have is about roughly the same sum or more would come from commercial income. Uh, there is a case to divide. If you like, into to two uh, separate organisations, one which deals with the public sector broadcasting elements, and, and then an RTE commercial model. Uh, that's something that, that was done in Australia. Um, but I, I think, as a country, we need to decide: Are we going to invest in producing good quality Irish content and programming? And there are examples where, you know, we have Ireland has done it well. And if you look at in the film side, where from an Irish perspective, we invested money in film. Uh, like the Banshees of Inishir and like on Colleen Kuhn. Uh, and there are real benefits uh, to that economic and tourism benefits as well. But I also think if, if you even think about stuff that, that is not commercially beneficial, when you think about some of the documentaries, uh, some of the primetime investigates programs uh, that have been carried out, how they have shown very important stories uh, up for Ireland. And, and look, you know that cost. Yeah. And similarly... Michael, you know, local radio stations across the country through, through the Sound and Vision Fund, mm. you've been able to put together programs. And that that's fair enough, but to, to, to somebody who doesn't listen to radio, who listens to podcasts and only watches Netflix, all of that sounds very subjective, I, I would imagine, and they want to know how much uh, are they going to have to pay uh, to produce the kind of, of things that you think are valuable? Well, I, 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 I mean, I, that's obviously coming out of general taxation. It's, it's mm. you know... It, traditional decision that you have to make is, uh, you know, for any government, how much tax do you raise and how much money do you spend? And as you know, we're already in the middle of discussions around the budget um, for this October. The economy is in, is in, is in very uh, strong condition, um, but decisions have to be made as to how monies are going to be allocated. And that will be a similar debate that will come up every year. But, but in a democracy, and, and this is, you know, my view very strongly, it's that we have to have quality public sector broadcasting, whether that's at national or local level. And um, that costs money uh, to produce. And we've got to make a decision uh, how we are going to fund that. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Many thanks indeed for joining us uh, today. Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne, who's a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media. Michael Reed on LMFM. We've a housing crisis. We've had a housing crisis for the last 15 years or so in this country. How many times have you heard that it's driven by an increase in demand and a decrease in supply? Well, the approved housing body Respond says it's on track to triple the number of social and cost rental homes it will construct in the coming months to more than 4,100 expanding its budget to 2 billion euro. It says it could deliver 700 of these homes this year and 900 by the end of next year. Now what that means locally is that there's 29 new social homes in construction in County Meath and there are 198 new social homes in construction in County Louth. When those homes are constructed, they'll add to some 200 
eight homes uh, across County Meath, which Respond currently owns, and 222 homes in County Louth. Now, that means that there's 560 people who have a place to call home in County Meath because of the work that Respond is doing, and 533 people who are tenants in County Louth. Neve Randall is a spokesperson for Respond and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Neve, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Delivering housing in this country has proved to be almost impossible, uh, it would seem, in in some circumstances. How how is it that Respond is delivering housing on such a great scale? So it's nice to be on to, to to speak about a good news story this morning, Michael. And certainly, as you've mentioned, we're on track to have 4,100 new social and cost rental homes uh, in construction by the end of this year. And how we're able to do that, we work collectively with the state. And uh, so there are two funding mechanisms. One is what's known as CAV, which facilitates us to deliver social housing, and that's the Capital Advanced Leasing Scheme. And then there's the CROWL model, which is the Cost Rental Equity Loan Scheme, which enables us to deliver cost rental homes. Cost rental homes, as you know, are a new tenure type in Ireland where the cost of the rent is based on the cost of delivering, managing and maintaining the home. So you've got a much more affordable rent in those homes, but also you've got the opportunity to remain in that tenancy for your lifetime if that's what you choose to do. So we've been working very hard with the state, uh, with the Department of Housing, with the Minister, with the Housing Agency and also the Housing Finance Agency to try to get this number of homes on track. We're very committed to delivering as many homes as we can. As you've mentioned, we are a charity, um, so we're a not-for-profit organisation. But we do have our 16,000 existing tenants and we also have a broad range of service users as well because we run a range of services. So we have family homeless services. So we unfortunately see the impact of the housing crisis really at that sharp end each and every day. But we also have early learning and school age care services. We run 17 of these centres. We've got three daycare programmes for older people. And then we also have some refugee resettlement programmes and family support programmes. So we've got a very strong commitment to our existing tenants and also our service users. So when we're looking at expanding our program, we need to engage with the state to ensure that we can deliver on these things, but also meet our existing commitments. The state, uh, amongst others, uh, seems uh, to be struggling to deal with construction inflation. How does Respond uh, manage uh, to come in uh, on target? So it has been, you know, a very, very difficult period. I don't think anybody could have foreseen we'd have the the COVID pandemic and then followed by the awful war in Ukraine and the impact that that's had in terms of both inflation and interest rates. It's had this kind of huge impact. So Respond are unusual as an approved housing body. So we're we're construction-led, which means 85% of what we do uh, on our development schemes is construction-led. And what this means is that we buy the sites outright and then we finance construction through fixed price contracts where we have stage payments and this mechanism actually enables us to deliver better cost savings and also high quality because at each stage payment we require independent quantity surveyors to sign off on on the various works so this helps us manage both the cost and the quality so delivering value for money for the state. Mm. And how does that work for the builders? Uh, uh, I mean uh, inflation uh, has been uh, very high uh, across all sectors but particularly in construction and if we need any evidence of that we need, need only look at uh, the National Children's Hospital. So yes I mean I, I think inflation has been a huge issue across the construction sector 
And I suppose what our model has enabled us to do where, in fact, that there were exceptional circumstances where, you know, inflation had an impact, there was a possibility to renegotiate on some of those costs. But it's exceptional circumstances and only where they're verified by an independent quantity surveyor. So that enables us to keep costs under control. But we have to be realistic in a, in a context where inflation has had an impact, where costs have increased. We have to be enabled to be flexible enough to respond to that. And we have to be enabled to ensure that we can continue to deliver because it doesn't work for anybody to have estates that aren't fully finished or to have homes that aren't fully finished. Our commitment is to help address the housing crisis in Ireland, to help meet the housing need for families and individuals, to ensure some of those families that are trapped in emergency accommodation can move on to homes of their own, but also to take some of that pressure off the private rental sector because that's a huge push factor in terms of families and individuals becoming homeless. So ensuring that we have this ongoing social and cost rental housing supply is absolutely essential if we are to tackle the housing and homeless crisis effectively. Mm. And you believe that you save money on these fixed price contracts? Yes, we do. Our approach, uh, so in our experience, we've been able to save up to uh, 60000 per unit. Uh, and this is when we compare it to a housing acquisition model where you'd buy the homes at the end of the period. So the fact that we're a construction-led AHB means that we're involved at this early stage to very closely manage costs, but also the quality. So that's a key part of the model. It's a very effective model. And I suppose we're working very closely with our state partners to ensure that we are on track to deliver these additional homes. They're so badly needed. I mean, we really do see that in our homeless services. We see the impact on children. We see the impact on families. And we work really hard providing a 24-7 support model in our emergency accommodation settings. Because what we want to do is to ensure that this experience of homelessness for these families, for these children, is the only experience of homelessness that they have over the course of their lifetime. And yet what the evidence tells us is that if you've experienced homelessness or housing insecurity as a child, you're much, much more likely to experience housing instability in adulthood and issues associated with that. And one of the things that we are doing as an organisation, and we spoke a bit about this at our launch yesterday, was we're working to become a trauma-informed organisation, which mm. means being responsive and understanding the trauma and the difficulties that people experience over their life cycle, whether that's our service users or our tenants or even our staff, because you know we, we all bring ourselves to, to work every day. We all have our, our experiences that we had in childhood. But what we do know is that adverse childhood experiences have a huge impact on adults. Um, and how we respond to this as a service provider, as a landlord providing tenancy management and support services, and as an employer, is really critical to supporting people to deal with some of these issues. And does that come uh, with being a tenant uh, in a respond housing unit? As you say, you have many different programmes supporting communities, early learning uh, family homelessness, refugee resettlement, uh, daycare for older people and family support. Uh, are they services that are available to your tenants? They're available in the communities that we work. Uh, it's not exclusively to, to our tenants. And I suppose one of the reasons for that is one of our commitments is, you know, around ensuring diverse and integrated communities. So ensuring that we've got services that are open for all and that you have that integration happening. And also acknowledging the fact that, you know, uh, I suppose, families you know go through different points in their life cycle as do kind of housing estates so some families might need early learning and school age care but that'll only be for a fixed period of time and then the children will age out of those services and move into school and move into kind of other other services as well 
So what we're working on is being as responsive as we can to community need and being adaptive as well in terms of responding to needs as they present. Okay. Uh, you Looking back uh, on what was obviously a very busy year in your annual report, which uh, you say, uh, as you say, you published yesterday, and it sounds as though there will be an equally busy, if not a busier year ahead. Neve, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Neve Randall, spokesperson for the housing charity Respond. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to anybody who's uh, been in touch with us uh, this morning. A few people already. Thanks uh, to the listener uh, who texted first thing. I'm not sure if you're still listening, uh, but somebody who said, I'm sick of listening to your coverage about RTA's finances every morning. You're just short of setting up a GoFundMe for them. More important things to be covered, like the cost of living, the state of the health service, the lack of guardie, the shortage of housing, etc. To hell with RTA. Says that listener. Thank you indeed for your text. As I say, Betty Daly in touch with us too. She says, Michael, the TV license is great value for money, all that you get for it. Uh, maybe the moaners will pay for extra channels on their mobiles or other gadgets in their home to stop their children being bored. Thanks, uh, Betty, for that. Uh, James Andrade uh, wonders if we should legalise porn movies uh, to sponsor. RTA to raise a few extra bob. Thanks, uh, James, for that. Uh, Somebody else says, I've always paid my licence fee, but totally refuse to pay it now. The only way people will trust RTA again is if those responsible are properly held to account and actually disciplined. Also, RTA needs a whole new shake-up. The old rhetoric of mistakes were made and we learn from that just will not do. Uh, and uh, I think it's uh, going back uh, to the, he- the, the sick of the coverage of RTE and to hell with RTE uh, comment. Somebody's just texted in to say, well said, that listener. <laughs> Thank you indeed. All right. I hear you. I hear you. Um, we'd uh, Jimmy Glugley in touch with us uh, the other day as well about RTE saying that the government should be warned not to tamper with pensioners free TV licenses and trying to redesign RTE's revenue because of uh, their self-inflicted financial mess. Thanks uh, Jimmy for your email to michael at lmfm.ie Some comments that we didn't get to yesterday uh, as our listener said uh, we've uh, given a bit of coverage to the problems at RTE. I think that's true to say. Uh, Jane was in touch with us yesterday. She says that going forward, RTE should be allocated a set amount of state money every year and they have to cut their coat according to their cloth, as the saying goes, and stay within that budget. The wages of the big names need to be cut significantly and brought back down to a reasonable size. The amount of money that they get needs to be looked at. They should have to turn their books over for scrutiny once a year to a state-appointed auditing company and they should be held accountable for every single cent that they spend. They've had free reign for far too long and look where it's got them. Uh, we'd Larry in touch with us as well saying uh, that going forward RTE should have to account for every penny that they spend. They should have regular audits conducted and have to report to the Public Accounts Committee on a regular basis if uh, they are left to their own devices. What's to stop them ending up in the exact same situation six months or 12 months from now? Uh, Marty, one of uh, the people in touch with us about the Obelisk Bridge in Drogheda yesterday saying the closure is going to be an absolute disaster for traffic in Drogheda town and the surrounding areas. Traffic congestion is already a massive problem in the town at certain times of the day and it's going to make things ten 
times worse, he reckons. Thanks, Marty, uh, for that. And apologies uh, with the delay in bringing it to you. Uh, An email uh, that came to us about the same subject uh, from Damien, who says, I'm listening to that story about the closure of the Obelisk Bridge and lifting the toll and all that. uh, And I sort of had to laugh. I have an interest stroke speciality in compromised space and roads in relation to pedestrian safety and car drivers, disability needs, drivers and small business owners, plumbers and the like. The NTA or the Department of Transport couldn't give a flying fig about the predicament of car or truck drivers. They're at the bottom of the ladder. In fact, they're not at the bottom of the ladder. They're not even on the first five rungs of the ladder. It's public transport and then cycling. That's where the concern and the money is. It's a two-pronged approach, he says. The carrot better facilities, cycleways, public transport, and then the stick to get cars off the road, narrowing carriageways, longer waits at traffic lights, roadworks at bad hours of the day, lots of things to put drivers off getting into cars, lowering emissions. So if people think Eamon Ryan or the NTA are going to spend €3 million lifting a toll to support drivers, I very much seriously doubt it. The more hassle for drivers, the better. By the time this is over, plenty and plenty of drivers will have changed their mode of frequency uh, of travel if they can. The Greens have taken over the government in this area and I'm not sure that people are aware of that outside of Dublin. Thank you indeed uh, for that, uh, Damien. Uh, we'd uh, somebody in touch with us about e-scooters this is Tony in County Loud following the dreadful accident on Saturday night he, he says that's brought into sharp focus the neglect of our lawmakers to move on this matter for the safety of both the user and indeed pedestrians who run the gauntlet of these scooters every day of the week. It's long past time that legislation be enacted to cover both helmets, insurance, tax, if necessary, since these are nothing less than electric motorbikes, some of them capable of frightening speeds that I've witnessed. Not one person has ever argued that an electric car should not require tax and insurance just because it's more green, because it's electric. And I can't help but feel that some of this tolerance seems to be influenced by Mr. Eamon Ryan wishing to go easy on anything that promotes electric vehicle use. And now this is the result, says Tony. Thanks indeed for that, Tony. We were speaking to Nolene Blackwell about uh, the Christian Brothers, a lot of talk about the Christian Brothers, and there will be uh, over the course of this week and next week before the councillors in Drogheda vote on whether to rescind the freedom of Drogheda that was bestowed on Brother Edmund Garvey in 1997 because of a legal strategy that Garvey introduced uh, that has done nothing but thwart victims of child sexual abuse from gaining access to justice. Uh, we Jackie Taff in touch with us uh, and she said, would you read out this quote? Uh, I looked it up after. Uh, it was from a British psychiatrist, uh, Henry Maudsley, who in 1895 said, the sorrow which has no vent in tears may make other organs weep. That's what Jackie asked us to read out. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, Mary said, Michael, talking about sex abuse, historical or otherwise, it brings it out into the open and it helps healing. Uh, The problem, Michael, is this. If the abuser took it on and apologised to those they abused, that would aid healing. But will they? Most abusers are not behind bars, Michael, says Mary. 
thank you uh, Mary uh, for your text as well and again apologies uh, for uh, the delay in bringing it uh, these are messages that came to us uh, yesterday uh, people in shops want straight bananas said Betty when she got in touch saying uh, roundy tomatoes uh, and straight bananas but there's no way they'd bring their own containers as they would clutter their beautiful shaker presses Thank you, Petty, for that. Um, we'd Paddy Duffy in touch with us, and he says, I'd like you to look into landlords who are refusing to register with the RTB. And as a result, taxpaying tenants can't apply for the tax credit that they're entitled to. I would suggest you submit two Freedom of Information requests, one to the RTB to establish how many landlords are registered, and second to the recent census organisers as to how many have declared that they are in tenancies. I hope you can assist with this, Paddy. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Paddy. Uh, Paddy sending that in to us uh, this morning. The thing is, uh, if your landlord... Uh, isn't registered that's illegal and you can report your landlord uh, and we'll take you up uh, on uh, your suggestions Paddy but we'd suggest to anybody who can't get the tax credit to mention to their RTB that their landlord <laughs> won't sign the form or whatever is required for that and there is a question as to whether they are actually registered there's consequences if they're not Sandra says I'd rather give my licence fee money to charity this year Thank you indeed. Uh, is that RTE, Sandra? Thank you, uh, as I say, uh, for your text. Our text number is 0861 You can text us or WhatsApp us on that phone, 0419832000. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, an email came to us yesterday from Stephen O'Connor complaining about uh, speed ramps in Lordship, saying uh, he noted six heavy articulated lorries speed over the new speed cushions and not slow down until the pedestrian crossing at the school. Stephen is on the phone with us together with the local Sinn Féin councillor Anton Waters. Good morning to both of you and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme to highlight this concern that you have, Stephen. Maybe you'd begin by explaining what a speed cushion is, if you would, please. Yes, surely, Michael. Thank you for having us on. A speed cushion is a smaller version of a ramp. It's usually put into a built-up area. It doesn't cover the entire um, section of the road. Uh, it can be easily side-skirted by larger vehicles, whereas a, a regular ramp stretches from one end of the road to the other and completely slows down vehicles. So it's, a, it's like a bump rather than an, an actual ramp. Okay, yeah. I've often wondered why they put them in. I, I've driven over them in small cars and not felt a bump, really. Um, but that's what's replaced what was there. and They were the full-speed ramps, were they? There was original speed ramps. There was a survey carried out years ago by the school, I think, uh, which showed that over 80% of vehicles were speeding past the school and the, the National Road Authority installed three very effective speed ramps, either side of the school and one straight in front of the school. But um, the roads, as everybody knows, we've had uh, resurfacing done out here in the last uh, two months and a half, and the new ramps that were put back are much smaller and they're very easily uh, skirted by, by larger, larger vehicles. Right, and do you believe it's going to result in tragedy? Absolutely, but it's going to result in another tragedy out here. I was leaving St. Patrick's GFC the other morning, and before this, you always had time to pull out when there was a vehicle approaching because that vehicle had to slow down for the ramp. But the other morning I was, I was leaving and a, a, a small lorry, not even a large lorry, completely side-skirted. Each wheel was either side of the 
small ramp and almost clipped the front of my car. They didn't slow down until the ramp at the school, which is the only effective ramp we have left now. But at that stage, it's it's too late. You've passed the entrance of the school mm. and there are hundreds of children. There's actually 180 pupils in that school at the moment, along with the, the entire larger community that are crossing the road every single day. OK. Um, Loud County Council uh, have told us uh, that, as you say, two speed cushions have been installed. As per the regulations, though, they say that this is a regional road with frequent bus services and the centre ramp will remain and slow traffic as usual. They tell us that the speed cushions installed are the widest form at 1.9 metres wide. And they go on to say that research shows that the average speed crossing them, I take it, will be 16 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour, well below the 50 kilometres an hour posted, which uh, I think is about 30 miles an hour, isn't it? Uh, road speed enforcement, as always, they say, is uh, the responsibility of Angarda Siakana. Uh, as I say, that's a statement that's come to us from Louth County Council. Uh, Sinn Féin Councillor Anton Waters is on the line. What do you make of what the council is saying and what do you make of what Stephen is saying? Um, yeah, look, very relative, uh, relevant uh, argument from Stephen. I agree with him. Last week, um, when they, put, they closed the road for the final day last Monday, and um, they were putting in the speed bumps back, reinstating them, as we believe. But um, unfortunately, it wasn't done. So the phone started hopping that what's going on here. There's been a change to the speed bumps, and I know how hard they were fought to get them. And like other areas who are still working very hard to get traffic calming measures, it's not something that's done overnight. So um, straight away I got on to the senior engineer to go to ask for the rationale behind it and the rationale he gave me is basically the same as your statement that they're following um, a road management uh, guidelines that they have and they've installed the, the 1.9 metre wide cushions which is the widest they can do. It goes from 1.5 to 1.9 every 100 mil. So it is it is an issue and as recently as this morning um, on foot of all the reps I've been getting I was speaking to the same senior engineer again who has informed me that we're going to meet on site to look at it and that they're willing to monitor it and um, look at maybe other options uh, in relation to try and improve it but he did go on to reiterate the statement he gave to me that he's very confident that this is going to make a big difference but as you can see and as Stephen has seen firsthand. Um, because they're not as wide, it gives the chance for a wider lorry to go through. But the, he says the rationale behind that is that it's following on from a number of complaints that they would have received from emergency service vehicles such as the fire brigade, the ambulance, and this is the reason why they're putting them on regional roads. He says it's not a new thing. The document that they're basing it on is 10 or 15 years old and that this is the reason why it's done. But he also did emphasise that the white lines are not finished. So if you look, there's only one solid white line in the road, but the markings round uh, um, the ramps and the cushions are not finished. So you actually don't really see them. They're not that very, uh, very evident on the road. So that's something that needs to be done, which will hopefully help it. But I do welcome that he's willing to engage with me and engage with the local residents. And me and Stephen can go over and have a chat with him and go, look, this is the concerns we have. We need to try and deal with it. The last thing we want, Michael, is someone getting hurt. Um, so I, I hope we can try and get this sorted rather quickly. But as you know, these things, unfortunately, take time. But it's up to us to put the pressure on them. OK, I'm, uh, an email that's come to me from Brendan Sheelan, who's the managing director at Shield Trans Limited in Riverstown. 
Uh, and uh, he makes a, a number of points against what you're saying, Stephen, uh, and maybe I could put some of them to you. Uh, and I, I think to summarise what he's saying, uh, it would mean that whilst you're well intended, uh, there could be unintended consequences to what you're asking for. Uh, he says uh, that uh, bus operators and hauliers have been campaigning against this style of speed camming because it's dangerous, very cost-effective, much more polluting and uh, that there's a a, a terrible danger involved in this. He he gives a number of reasons. One, uh, where a truck broke a front near side spring causing the truck to collapse and the driver losing his steering control periodically, swerving to the left, hitting the lamp on the pedestrian crossing. Luckily, he says, no children were crossing the road at the time. Well, Michael... All of these concerns are very valid, but they're not valid if the vehicle is travelling at a slow enough speed. You can easily cross these ramps if you're going slow enough. And aside from that, if there was no speeding, if all vehicles, trucks, buses, lorries, cars, were travelling at the correct speed limit, we wouldn't need ramps. So, you know, we're, we're talking around here in circles, but mm. that, that, that argument to me is, is not valid. If you're going slow enough over any type of a ramp, it shouldn't damage a vehicle. Okay. If you hit a ramp at a higher speed, well, yes, yeah, every, mm. every vehicle is going to be damaged. Okay, another point, uh, just to put it to you about the bus, if there's elderly people on the bus, they go over the ramp, they could be thrown all over the bus. Well, there is a ramp. They have left one of the ramps at the original height, so, again, that's invalid because they're still going to have to cross the higher ramp. Again, the bus going slowly enough. It's not about speed. It's not about being on time. It's about safety. Mm. It's about people's lives. Okay. If vehicles are going slow enough, they should be able to cross the ramps easily enough, mm. with no damage to anybody, and safely. Okay. What about the cost and maintenance of trucks and buses? He talks about cab bushings, cab airbags, suspension airbags, springs, and downtime on the vehicles. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, Brandon has given this a, a lot of thought. What do you make of what he's saying uh, in relation to that, uh, Stephen? Well, I absolutely understand the concerns. In- a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
fact, we have our own vehicles here in O'Connor Roofing Supplies, which was crossed the ramps on a daily basis. But again, if you're going slow enough, it shouldn't affect them. You know, absolutely. But and, and safety and people's lives are more important than an expense to any business. And, and I think that should be the, the forefront here. OK. Uh, what do you think, Anton? Because... Uh Brendan Sheelan seems to be saying in his email uh, that uh, the solution here is more signs and calming measures, uh, that this is one of uh, the busiest ore roads in the country, uh, and that if you cause trucks and buses to stop suddenly like this because of a speed ramp and then to accelerate after that, you're burning more fuel and this is causing even greater pollution. Um, well, look, uh, Mike, I know Brendan very well, and myself and himself have had conversations on this uh, over the last seven years since I've been a councillor, and he would often mention to me other places down the country where they have islands in the middle of the road and, like, pinch points where they reduce the width of the road, and he's all about trying to reduce ramps because he says himself and other hauliers in the Cooley Peninsula are against it. But, again, I think it's it's a balanced approach we, approach we need. We need safety to be paramount because at the end of the day, every road user should be safe using the road. Every pedestrian crossing over to use the Pats uh, football complex or use to attend the school should be safe. I know every time... I know every time we have a meeting with Cooley Community Alert where we're addressing traffic and safety concerns, Michael, this comes up all the time. There's always different opinions on it. Um, I think it's something we need to look at. Um, as you know, I'm campaigning on uh, safety measures outside Belorgan National School, and we've been working on that the last year or so. So this road is very busy. I've always said it to you. It's motorway traffic on a regional road. We have a very busy port. It's a big employer. There's a lot of people coming from all over the northeast to go there. I understand that. But again, mm-hmm. you have to try and remember that everyone has to be safe using the road. So I think going forward, it's not something that's going to be sorted very soon. I think we need a look. I heard you mention the Eamon Ryan earlier. I know our TD out here, Ruri O'Murakou, has raised this road with Eamon Ryan on a number of occasions, be it outside Bush Post Primary School where we have an issue, Belorgan, now Lordship is rising its head. I think we need to look at it, the whole road as a whole because at the end of the day, it, it's at the minute and what it is now, mm. it's, it's, it's something that really needs to be looked at. Do you think that part of the problem, as Brendan seems to think in his email, is traffic coming from St. Patrick's and that if you put a, a ramp at the exit of the club, that may uh, help things somewhat? It's hard, look, I, I don't know. It's a hard one to know. You need to nearly go and stand there for a wee while and look at it. I know whenever you used to exit the paths, you knew the traffic were coming on to that speed bump, so you had time to get out ahead of it. But now, as Stephen says, vehicles can travel through that without having to slow down as much as they had to before. So maybe people, you're used to, you're kind of used to pulling out there and having a bit of time. Now you don't have as much time, and I think that's something that maybe people are realising as well. So they're all factors, Michael, in in the whole thing, you know. Mm. Uh, Stephen, I, I think uh, there's uh, quite obviously two sides to this argument, sure. uh, and more aspects to it than I'd have ever thought of. To be completely honest with you, uh, and people. People will come to their own conclusions. Uh, you're asking people to let their views be known to the council. Surely. Well, actually, what I was going to suggest to you, Michael, mm. is there's, there's two things. It, it, I'm very, very passionate about this. In 1988, I lost a brother on that road when there was no speed limit. So you can see that the passion I have for it. But there's one other thing I have suggested, uh, and the councillors have said that it's too expensive. The easiest solution for everybody, including the bus drivers, including the hauliers, is an average speed camera at either side of the two-kilometre 
stretch of lordship, which will force vehicles to slow down and travel at the predicted speed limit, of the, the set speed limit. You can't break that. If you ever go in the, the um, port tunnel, cars automatically go into cruise control at the 80 kilometre per hour uh, speed limit because you cannot go over there. You get a speeding fine in the post. And that's one solution that will solve it for everybody. There'll be no problem with vehicle slowdown. There'll be no problem with old people on buses. And people of Lordship will be able to cross the road safely knowing that all vehicles will be at the correct speed. Mm. I think that's the best solution for everybody. Absolutely. Uh, And, uh, of course, there's driver responsibility in Lordship and on every stretch of road in the country. If we all abided by the speed limit, you wouldn't have a need for ramps or speed cameras or anything like that. And we can do that very easily by deciding to do it ourselves as well, Stephen. You just mentioned to me there before you go, Michael, is uh, before the 12th of September, Mm. there is a chance for everybody to submit to their local council uh, an application as as to speed limits, speed limit reductions in their their area, their villages and towns around the county. Okay, thank you uh, for joining us. Thanks for the email, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks as well, Anton, for coming on this morning with us. Anton Waters, Sinn Féin councillor on Louth County Council, and Stephen O'Connor in uh, uh, Lordship there. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, next June we'll be voting in uh, the local elections. How many women will we have uh, the opportunity to vote for? I suppose uh, the answer to that at the moment is... Who knows? The All-Ireland Women's Forum, as you've been hearing this morning, is calling for gender quotas to be extended to local government. The forum is led by the National Women's Council. Rachel Coyle is head of campaigns and mobilisation with the National Women's Council of Ireland. And she joins us now. A very good morning to you, Rachel, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. We've had gender quotas at a national level. You want them introduced at a local level. What should those quotas be, do you think? Good morning, Michael. Yeah, we're looking for a 40% gender quota to be extended to local government because we want local government to better reflect the communities that they represent. And for us, that means more women and more diverse candidates. Men are 49% of the population but hold 74% of local government seats. And without quotas, we just think the pace of change is simply too slow. We can't say we have a democracy when half the population aren't properly represented quotas, they level the playing field as women face greater barriers in accessing public life. Okay, quotas doesn't necessarily uh, mean that uh, you'll have 40% of uh, the councillors elected uh, being women, does it? No, that's right. Um, What it means is that there's parity uh, or greater parity on the ballot paper. Um, But it really, it's down to voters to determine who they want to see elected to represent them. And it would be up to the political parties to have 40% of uh, their candidates being women. That's right. Okay. And we know that political parties really are um, the most successful pipeline for women into politics. Okay. Uh, As a a woman living in this country, Rachel, do you believe uh, that you are represented sufficiently by local councillors? Or if not, I I presume the answer is no. If not, why not? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think like when you look around the country and there are disparities even between like rural constituencies and and urban um, local authorities, but there's 11 constituencies and 23 local electoral areas that have no women elected at all. Um, So I think there is a lot of work to be done at national level. I mean, only 36, sorry, 36 TDs are women, um, which, you know, it's, it's just simply not good enough, as they say, when half the population aren't represented. 
Mm. And there's lots of options available. And today's event by the All Island Women's Forum, which, by the way, the forum, it's made up of women from diverse communities right across the island, north and south. And mm-hmm. we talk about the issues that are facing women in our communities. And we see the same challenges exist and themes that cut across. And women's representation, it consistently comes up. And the barriers in particular to um, our representation. So today's event, it looks at those barriers and it looks at the initiatives actually that right across Europe um, to increase representation. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry, I was just going to say we should explain to people uh, that you're holding this webinar today and you'll have women from uh, across Europe uh, outlining their experience of gender quotas in different countries uh, and indeed many women from this uh, country as well undoubtedly talking about it. You were saying uh, it's open to the public uh, if uh, they have access to the internet through Eventbrite. That's right, yes, and they can find all that on our social media. Okay. Uh, Tell me um, uh, how you think uh, life would uh, improve if uh, there were more women in Irish politics. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, like, I suppose it's a matter of democracy, isn't it? Um, And I think it's it's really just, like, I think in particular with local government, because of the nature of the decisions that are made at local local government, so you think around housing, roads, our libraries, um, you know, I think that those actually probably impact closer to women, possibly. Um, so it's really, really important that women's voice is elevated into that space. And um, as I say, women do kind of face more barriers, even like when we think of things around like income disparity. Um, you know, and I think those sorts of political decisions, um, they impact more on women. So we, we need to see more women at the decision-making table. Mm. I certainly would like to see more women at the decision-making table uh, for many reasons. Uh, I think women can be more level-headed and see things in the round and take into account other people's point of views and are less likely to shout people down. But as you say, it's a democratic deficit regardless of whether it makes any change uh, because 51% of the population are women, are they? That's right, yeah. And th- this is it. I don't want to make any generalizations, mm-hmm. you know, wh- you know, about whether women are better reps or not. But when we look at the culture uh, or the political culture, unfortunately, like, it is marred with sexism. It is seen as very adversarial. Um, and that, I suppose, isn't traditionally how women do power. And you see in the places where women do organize very well, uh, so say in, like, the community sector, for example, um, you know, the collaborative nature, um, you know, of working together comes out a bit more. Um, So we would love to see that reflected better in our local authorities. Okay, and even with quotas uh, for uh, the general elections in this country, we're 87th in the world when it comes to women's participation in national politics. That's right. Um, And in fairness, the, the quota applied in 2016 at the 30%. It was successful in increasing women's representation. It's all um, actually 48% increase mm. at that time. And so, I mean, and then it sort of leveled off in 2020, I suppose, with only a, a half a percentage increase. But I think that goes to show that it, like, that's another argument for quotas really is where the parties are kind of forced to do the bare minimum of applying um, 30%. This is what we kind of come back with. So hopefully next time around, because we know that that quota has increased now to 40% for the next elections, Mm. hopefully we see an increase. We've a a lot of women uh, in politics locally here, uh, a lot of women on Meath County Council, a lot of women on Louth County Council, all very hardworking, uh, effective uh, councillors for that matter. 
Uh, but I, I, I take it that's uh, very different uh, or it, it differs in different parts of uh, the country uh, and that uh, you have some parts of the country where you have absolutely no women. That's right, yeah. And I think, like, you know, as you say, um, these are women who are working, men who are working incredibly hard. Um, and w- another, I suppose, uh, line of this or side to this is that we need to start looking at our political institutions and making them more attractive to women, to carers, um, you know, people with um, maybe different or additional needs. Um, you know, we need to be looking at whether or not they're, I suppose, appropriate or are they family friendly? Um, are they are they modern? Um, like our view is very much that the way the political life has been structured is quite antiquated. Um, and I mean, like a critical barrier to women, uh, women's participation is the issue of care. And um, and we're not just talking about childcare, but care of older relevant, uh, relatives, partners. Um, and this is really, really crucial. Um, like care, childcare or other care expenses, they're not eligible expenses for local councillors. Like we don't have proper maternity or paternity leave. Mm. Um, even like the times and the way that meetings are structured aren't very uh, family friendly. A lot of people just don't have the flexible support at home that would allow them to participate in like late night meetings or, you know, ad hoc constituency engagement. So there's a lot of things that really need to be done even within local authorities. Um, and we've actually developed a toolkit um, for political, sorry, for um, local authorities. Um, and we surveyed, um, you know, dozens of councillors around the countries and local authorities to see what works for them. Um, and I think just post-pandemic, we know now we have like greater use of technology. There are other options there. Um, so there's there's plenty of mm. scope um, to restructure the way that we do our political work. Do you think... Sorry. I'm sorry, Richard. Do you think that there's uh, some momentum behind this now, given the progressive uh, change with the uh, government minister, Helen McEntee, taking maternity leave on two occasions? I mean, I certainly hope so. And, I w- you know, we would like to see that nor- normalised. Um, and I know Helen uh, McEntee has received quite a lot of uh, sexist abuse. Um, I mean, I suppose it's worth mentioning as well, the abuse of women elected reps um, far exacerbates that of male elected reps. Like a study uh, between 2020 and 2021 showed that female councillors in the South, they received eight times more um, abuse, abusive tweets, say, you know, online um, than their male counterparts. So, like, that's a real deterrent for women. Um, so, no, I really hope that that does normalize uh, women um, and, you know, men mm. taking the time out. You know, if, if family is at the center of our society, then we need to actually properly value that time. Okay, well, the public webinar starts at uh, 11 o'clock and people can access it today through Eventbrite. Rachel, thank you indeed for joining us. That's Rachel Coyle, who's Head of Campaigns and Mobilisation with uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, on Monday week, the 4th of September, councillors in Drogheda will be voting on a motion relating to the freedom of Drogheda that was bestowed on Edmund Garvey, Christian brother Edmund Garvey, back in 1997. This has proved to be somewhat contentious, and as yet, we haven't had sight of the wording of that motion, and we're not sure exactly at this stage what they will be voting on but it could be to rescind or not that honour that was bestowed on Brother Edmund Garvey. It could uh, be a motion that will call on Brother Garvey uh, to hand back the freedom of uh, Drogheda honour himself voluntarily 
or not, as the case may be. The reason for this, if you've been listening to this programme over a number of months at this stage, you'll know, is because of a legal strategy that has been adopted by the Christian Brothers in dealing with victims of child sexual abuse. These are people whose abusers have been convicted of their crimes but cannot get redress from the order because of this strategy. It's been described as justice delayed, which is justice denied by the former uh, Chief Justice Frank Clark. The Law Reform Commission says uh, that it's a loophole in the law that should be shored up. One in Four, as you know, is an organisation uh, that works with people who have been victims of child sexual abuse. Deirdre Kenny is its advocacy director and the deputy chief executive officer and she's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Deirdre. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You've worked with a, a number of people Uh, who were abused by Christian brothers who found themselves in this next-to-impossible situation to get redress. Um, What impact has that had on them, can I ask you? Good morning, Michael. Um, Yeah, well, as we know, any legal process, whether it's criminal or civil, can take its toll on a survivor. Um, It takes an enormous amount of uh, bravery. Um, for a survivor to to come forward and disclose whether it's to the police or their lawyers what has happened to them and they take take that um, feeling a great degree of risk and fear and for those survivors who have been now further frustrated by essentially what seems like almost a corporate approach to this issue um, yeah, it it feels like another kick in the teeth it feels like the, the corporation of Christian Brothers, for want of a better word, have the power again. And, and no doubt that will cause for further re-traumatisation to people um, who have been frustrated. Mm. Um, and What does that mean? That, can you explain to us what that means, re-traumatisation? Does it mean uh, that they're very frustrated by going through the courts or does it mean that they're finding it difficult to come to terms with uh, this scar uh, on uh, their person uh, that uh, resulted from the abuse? Well, we know that it is important for people to be believed. So, as I said, survivors take a risk in coming forward. And it's often to try and solve the, the real internal pain and shame and guilt that they feel around what happened. So a lot of survivors of, of Christian brother abuse would have been abused in schools. And they have talked to us over the years of um, feeling like it was just them, but also other people had witnessed things that happened in classrooms. And back in the 90s, um, it wasn't as much talked about, but over the decades, we know much more now. And as you said earlier, a lot of those uh, teachers have gone on to be convicted. But I guess there is a desire for accountability, which is really important, and especially when someone has been caused to harm, a child essentially has been caused to harm as that child grows up and looks back on their life, they can see the impact. It could be on relationships, it could be addiction, there could be many of things that that have impacted them. So to hold the entity to account is really important for survivors in order to feel, I suppose, a sense that there isn't something that they have done wrong, that this wrong has, somebody else has had a responsibility for it. And that that's recognised, and that it's recognised by the order who would have had a a duty of care to uh, these men now when they were children. 
exactly. And recognised by the order, but also by their community. Um, because that that abuse happened in, in a classroom, in in a community, in a family. You know, it, it, we're all in some way bystanders to what happened. And I suppose it's important, most survivors feel that need to have the acknowledgement by maybe it's their loved ones, but also sometimes their wider community. It's a, an interesting yeah. thing you say about the community because um, most of, just one of uh, the 30 or so people that we're talking about uh, who Damien O'Farrell represents is from County Loud. Most of them not from uh, the County Loud alone. Drogheda, um, as I said, this has become contentious which in itself uh, is very unusual. But one of the reasons we're being told about that is because of some survivors from Drogheda, people who are from Drogheda, who were abused by Christian brothers, who feel this uh, is re-traumatising them, this call to rescind uh, the freedom of Drogheda uh, uh, from Brother Garvey, that that discussion is re-traumatising them. Uh, And indeed, that if it happens, it may impede people from entering into a mediation process that we're told uh, is available to people in Drogheda. I'm not aware of the ins and outs of what you described, but I, I I can see that there are complexities there and it's it's a very emotional roller coaster for people. So like I mentioned earlier, fear is usually the dominating um, emotion around these issues and you're dealing with uh, a legal process that is, can be intimidating to people. You can, you're dealing with an entity that has probably still a great degree of power and that feels like a threat or it feels um, sometimes that that when you're vulnerable or you've been caused to harm, that, that you're on the back foot. So mm. I can understand how... Um, Is that unusual, feel. though, do you think, Deirdre, for one set of victims to be lobbying a- a- against what another set of victims are, are calling for? I think I think probably if, if there was a space to be creative where victims could talk to each other about it, I think they would find that there's probably more in common than not. But I think um, it sounds, you know, not everybody's the same. Not everybody will be impacted in the same way and not everybody will see things the same way. Mm. So um, it's not ideal um, for sure that that, um, survivors would be pitched against each other. That's not helpful. Um, Are you surprised that in the run-up to this vote, uh, that of uh, the 10 councillors who will vote on this motion, as I said earlier, we haven't seen the motion yet, uh, but we have a fair idea of uh, what is involved. Uh, Of the 10 councillors who will get to vote on it, just one of the 10 has met with the group who are hoping that the freedom of Drogheda will be rescinded. I I don't know why the reasons the others may not have, but I would hope that for representatives in our community that they would show leadership on this issue. And if anything, should be creating a space for survivors to come together and find common ground as opposed to making this more difficult or stressful for people. Um, uh, there's no doubt there's things I don't, I, I'm not uh, you know, aware of the full picture here, but I do know how um, sexual violence imp- imp- impacts people's lives and we deal with that every day of the week. And it is so important that the people around those who've been harmed understand that impact. And unfortunately, the common, I suppose, emotion around all of that is shame. So for us as bystanders who may not have been harmed, we also sometimes feel our shame. And that shame paralyzes us. And we don't necessarily feel like we can do anything to help 
but that's that's not the case. We have to see past that. It's really healthy to have these conversations. They're not comfortable, um, but they are really, really important. And um, I would hope that the representatives in the community can, can come together and, and find a way to manage this in a, in a really healthy way, as opposed to something that's going to cause further harm and upset. Mm. I know that there is some upset. Um, the strategy itself, uh, I mean, it seems cold, callous and calculated uh, to me with one objective uh, to protect the bank balance of uh, the Christian brothers. Uh, there's no other plausible explanation for denying people justice. But do you in 104, does 104 um, echo the calls of the Law Reform Commission um, to shore up this loophole, uh, the uh, comments of uh, the former Chief Justice, uh, Frank Clark, uh, Nolene Blackwell of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre on the programme yesterday saying uh, exactly that, Colm O'Gorman uh, in recent weeks and many others who've condemned this strategy that the Christian Brothers has chosen to adopt, which the Christian Brothers does not have to use or put it in place and could easily change the options available to those who were failed by the order when they were in their care. We absolutely echo uh, the sentiments of of all of those people you've mentioned, that loophole needs to be dealt with legally, but also the Christian Brothers, we would call on them, obviously, to do the right thing. And um, I guess in, in our experience, where institutions have turned a blind blind eye to abuse, um, if they haven't done some serious kind of work on themselves to figure out why that happened, then we often come across a situation where they're still, as we know, trying to protect the organisation as they did back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And um, that seems to be the case here. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's really it seems to be like a, an approach that you would see from a corporate multinational company, not a religious organisation who should be concerned with morals and ethics. Um, so, yeah, it's very disturbing. Brother Edmund Garvey uh, is not a, a young man. Um, he's a, a native of Drogheda. Many people in Drogheda are very proud of his professional career. Uh, and then there's this, um, this strategy which he introduced and chose uh, to pursue to thwart people from getting justice knowingly and intentionally uh, and despite all of the calls over a long period of time to drop this strategy. Um, do you have any thoughts uh, on um, what Damien O'Farrell and the group he represents, about 30 victims, um, uh, what they're looking for um, to rescind the freedom of Drogheda. Do you have any thoughts on 104 uh, about that? I think it's, it, it's an important ask, and I would hope, again, as I said, the, the, the representatives would, would see it for what it is and, and honour it. Um, and I can see it's so important to those survivors, Damien and the ones he represents, to get that acknowledgement. So while they may not be able to close the loophole, it's important um, that the County Council can take any steps that it can to um, acknowledge in some way the understanding they have of the harm that was caused to survivors, not just in Laos, but across the country um, and across the world. And and I suppose um, in solidarity with survivors, it's a small move, but it could be so significant and it would mean a lot.
And I think that, that um, again, it's difficult because it seems like um, people see it from different perspectives. But um, as I said before, acknowledgement in the community of the harm that was caused and who is responsible for it is very, very important. Okay. Um, as I say, the vote is going to take place uh, in just under two weeks, uh, Deirdre. Uh, undoubtedly, there will be a, a lot of talk and uh, discussion in between now and then. Uh, there hasn't been very much, as I say, in uh, the way of discussion up to now between uh, the councillors who will get to vote on this and the victims who are asking them to heed what they're saying. Um, I've said before on the programme that... Uh, it seems to me uh, as though history is repeating itself in some ways, um, how Drogheda has pulled down the shutters, how Drogheda isn't listening, how Drogheda didn't listen to the women's uh, whose wombs were being moved when Michael Neary was unnecessarily uh, conducting hysterectomies, how people didn't listen when Michael Shine was abusing young men and boys uh, and now um, another group of victims who've uh, been subjected to, to assault are asking Drogheda to listen to them uh, but their calls are falling on deaf ears uh, and uh, again to reiterate in uh, the strongest possible terms um, there is no wrongdoing uh, in terms of what is being said about Brother Edmund Garvey but um, would you agree with what I've just said about uh, third time round for Drogheda? Yeah, look, I think the silence and the lack of solidarity, again, will be a painful experience for survivors. So I hope, I know that won't be everybody's position on it, but I hope the people in leadership roles um, can stand up and, and in solidarity with survivors and um, really support them um, in this symbolic way. Deirdre, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. Deirdre Kenny, Advocacy Director and Deputy Chief Executive Officer with One in Four. Michael Reed on LMFM. My word, an awful lot of people in touch with us about speed cushions and speed ramps in Lordship. So many uh, and so little time left on the programme. We'll have to return to the subject uh, tomorrow. We will return to it uh, tomorrow if you want to tune in then and we'll come to your comments. Uh, if you want to make comments in between or tell everybody uh, in the locality, we'll be giving some time to it again on the programme tomorrow if you want to make your views known to us. Apologies we weren't expecting such a massive reaction to that topic on the programme today. But now, uh, see what you think of this. There are seismic changes taking place in home ownership that, unless arrested will have major adverse implications for current and future generations to come. That's the view of uh, the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers, the IPAV Pat Davitt is its chief executive and is on the line. Good morning to you, Pat, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. You say that home ownership needs to be promoted, and to do that, there needs to be a change in policy and how people are enabled to buy their own houses. Good morning, Mike. Um, yeah, uh, we see at the moment uh, younger people under the age of 40 there is only between 25 and uh, 35% of those, depending on which figures you accept, uh, owning their own home. And this going forward, from our point of view, to people in the age to get to their pension age, 
is a very, very uh, bad reflection on home ownership in Ireland, we feel, as if the traditionally, uh, I suppose our parents would have always had some sort of a house of some description when they got to pension age and they lived there, uh, when they got that far as such time as they got their next reward in life. But now, if people don't own their own homes when they get to that stage, we feel that it's going to mean that a lot of those older people now are going to become homeless. So we need to see, we believe, the seismic changes in the way uh, those younger people are treated and how they're able to get on the property ladder and what help they need and incentives that they need from the government to get there. Okay, maybe before you tell us what, sorry Pat, maybe before you tell us what the solution is, uh, perhaps uh, you could tell us uh, how this became a problem. Well, it becomes a problem or it's a problem for everybody because when in actual fact people get to pension age, if they have no house, they have to continue renting a house. Mm. And that's with renting a house and living on the pension that we're speaking about in Ireland at the moment. It's just not possible to do. So we see the uh, the last ERSI figures for the previous three months. And in the homeless figures that they produce, you see 169 pensioners in it. And uh, that really is a warning sign for people that this is going to continue and continue and those figures are going to grow if we mm. keep allowing younger people not to buy homes or not help them to buy homes. So, But, but, but why is it? What, what, what was the problem that caused younger people to stop buying homes or even having the ambition of ever owning their own home? I think many people, younger people, have the ambition to buy a home but just can't get on the property ladder for different reasons. Uh, for maybe they can't borrow enough money uh, maybe they can't uh, actually get the deposit themselves and obviously interest rates are a big uh, number now as well. So like between one thing and another and uh, I suppose the biggest thing is the price of housing and how housing, housing has got expensive. Mm. So it has really gone out of the reach of a lot of younger people and it's when people are younger it really is much easier for them to buy a property and to pay back the mortgage than it would be for people when they get older because the short the mortgage term is going to be shorter. So we're saying, uh, we're not saying that it's the solution, but we're saying that it's going to help as part of the solution is even the lengthening of those mortgage rates for people or mortgage terms for people, for young people between the ages of 20 and 30. That in itself is going to be a huge help and it's going to be an incentive for people to get on the actual property ladder. Mm. To have a a 40-year mortgage? Well, a 40-year mortgage, yes. Uh, and in some cases, uh, 50-year mortgages, people could well do it. But if you have mm. somebody uh, between probably some, something like 25 and 35, 40-year mortgage to them is no great problem. I, I don't believe one way or another because 30 years, obviously, you're still going to be in the 65 bracket. But it means that at a younger age, when you're not able to afford to pay back a big repayment, that your repayments are quite small. And as Cardinal's time moves on, you can obviously pay back some of that mortgage if you wanted to. But it means that when you're younger, that you're able to actually pay the mortgage because the mortgage payments monthly are smaller. Mm. And uh, I think they probably are smaller. Uh, if you look back at the 1970s, for example, interest rates continue uh, to be still very low, don't they? Well, interest rates at the moment are somewhere in the region of 4 or 4.5% or maybe mm. 5%, depending on uh, some mortgages. Like there are some people in Ireland which have been caught with the, uh, I suppose, the, the the boom and bust in 2006 mm. and 2007 that are paying possibly 8 and 10% for mortgages now. Culture fund mortgages, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of mm. them are caught in those situations. But the ordinary mortgage you should be able to get in at the moment for, for somewhere in the region of uh, 5%. But if you think, uh, Mike, that in, in, in less than a year ago, 
uh, you were able to borrow uh, a mortgage in Ireland or take out a mortgage in Ireland and, and that interest, that rate was guaranteed with a fixed rate for 25 to 30 years at less than 2%. And now we're in a situation where those fixed rates are gone mm. and you're in now looking at being able to, uh, the interest rates of 45 to 5%. And, like, you know, their interest rates have grown considerably since then mm. and looks like they're going to go up again. Mm. So, like, you know, the interest rates are increasing all of the time. OK. Uh, you want uh, the Help to Buy grant uh, to be extended to €40,000. Uh, you want more competition. You want more grants. Uh, you want a, a, a new way of looking at this and a, a shift in government policy uh, in terms of encouraging home ownership. Well, incentives, we, we call them, but like the, the first-time buyer's grant is due to run out at the end of uh, 2024, but like we're asking for that to be extended. We think that's a necessity for people, first of all, but we're asking to be extended from 30,000 to 40,000 for people under the age of 40 years of age just buying a new home. And we're asking for a new first-time buyer's scheme for uh, second-hand homes, uh, put in there as well, under the four, people under the age of 40 buying of 20,000 euros. Uh, which is is a must as well because lots of people can't afford to buy new homes and they want to buy a second-hand home but there's no grant there for them to help them to do it. That grant in lots of cases, it acts as the deposit for people who don't have parents maybe that's there to help them or other relations there to help them. Okay, Pat, I I have to cut you short. I'm sorry, we've run out of time but thank you for your time. Apologies for the shortage of time and thanks for joining us. Pat David, Chief Executive of IPAV, that's the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.